If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, sorry, I can't. This is a bad thing about turning old. Like, I have glasses because <laughs> I need to read. But then when I look at you, I feel like I'm in, like, when I did the driving class and I had to put on the drunk goggles. Anybody ever been on the drunk goggles? I, did, I had to take a class when I was down in Texas to drive the church van. And in it, they asked for a person who would come up and put on the drunk goggles to make a fool of themselves while I volunteered and fell over like three different chairs and everything else. So uh, when I look at you, I feel like to a certain extent I got drunk goggles on. So um, anyways, 1 Timothy chapter 4, as you follow along or as we've already read, I want to encourage you with this. And and I want want to give you an update on a couple of things. Number one... um, I don't know if you've noticed the last year and a half, to a certain extent, it feels like the world has gone through a lot of turmoil. Anybody ever feel that way? I mean, the United States is in predicaments and situations that we never thought we'd put ourselves in or we never thought we would see in the state. We're, we're seeing things take place across the world, not just in Afghanistan, but across the world where Christians and believers are being persecuted more and more. And I, I want to give you a heads up to let you know just a little bit about what, what's going on. This last week, I have been in meetings uh, with church leaders and different people around the state uh, as well as uh, being encouraged by um, some people that I know of. We, we, I, I've met a, a, a man recently who had served some time in, as an Army Ranger, has done Army Ranger stuff in the past, done Special Forces stuff. He now runs an organization here in the United States called Concilium. Concilium deals with church safety, but they also work with getting Christians and believers from countries where there's large amounts of persecution going on out um, and I want to share with you just something today that he recently shared um, that, that said this. Let me, dadgummit, I had it pulled up here. Um, but he just recently shared, they've been praying over there, and I don't know if you realize what all has been going on overseas, over in Afghanistan, but as of this morning, 140 children in Afghanistan that were believers were evacuated. They were under uh, great stress, great pressure. Concilium, along with other organizations, uh, got to work. They've been at work. I don't know if you realize, if you watched any of the news, there are organizations, both veteran and, and different organizations over there working to get people out with what's going on. And uh, I, I just want to let you know that there are people out there that are working, that are, are believers, that are, that are Bible-believing Christians who are adamant about getting those things. Now, here's the great news about this. And you may look at things, you may say, well, there can't be much great news. We've had servicemen die. We have, I'll be honest with you, I don't care where you stand politically, an inept leadership that has made some crazy decisions. But I want you to know this, that we here in Missouri, both St. Louis and Kansas City, are going to receive refugees. We know that. We know they're on their way. We're trying to figure out how we can begin to reach them. We're trying to look at how we can partner with and serve those refugees. As a matter of fact, our own association, Blue River Kansas City Baptist Association, has a uh, a refugee walkthrough. If you guys are ever interested, we'll let you know more information as it comes up. So you can know what it's like to be a person who's a refugee who gets brought in the United States. It's literally a situational scenario where you are being brought or escorted in to feel what it's like to be a refugee here in the United States. So we want to encourage you to be praying for, um, you could be praying for concilium, you could be praying for those who are over there trying to do the work to help rescue some of these people. But as you do that, I want to encourage you with this. Over the last year and a half, 
pastors, churches, and believers have had to make decisions that honestly we never thought we would have to make before. These are first-time scenarios, first-time situations, and I believe wholeheartedly that based upon Scripture, it's only going to get harder, it's only going to get more difficult, it's only going to be more pressure, and the reality is there's also going to be people who aren't happy with what goes on. And listen, I know as a person in leadership that leaders have to make decisions, leaders have to make choices that people are not going to be happy with. But I want to focus on this today because this comes from our New Testament, our NT90 that we've been going through. And I want to focus on this this whole section that Paul's talking about. Now, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. As he writes this letter to Timothy, he's telling Timothy to stick at and to stay at what he's doing. Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He was a young man. He was stepping into a leadership role. He had been discipled by Paul. And then here's what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will what? Abandon the faith. What does that mean? To a certain extent, it's what we've saw go on in Afghanistan. To a certain extent, it was the idea of abandoning these people. But what it's saying is that there are people who claim to be followers of Christ who will, in the latter times, do what? Abandon the faith. They're going to leave. And this idea of abandonment is to say, hey, look, I know all of this is going on, but we're out. I'm moving on. And so Paul is telling Timothy that we have to be prepared for these things because people in latter times will abandon the faith. And then it says this, and they're going to follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, while I say that, I I am assured by and I am confident that all around us, we continue to see the hand of God at work in his creation in each and every situation and scenario through him working in our lives, in our jobs, in our families, through our difficulties, through our joys. But at the same time, we can see Satan working in the situations going on around our world. And I want you to think about this. As a matter of fact, there's a great story I found recently. It says that in 1896, Norman the Kid McCoy was a welterweight boxing champion. And in one of his fights, he learned that the opponent he was fighting was death. And as he found out he was deaf, it says that he literally, as they were nearing the end of the third round, he points to to his opponent's corner and points to the ear acting like the bell had sounded. When his opponent turned his head to look to the corner and walk away, he dealt a knockout blow. Now, we don't talk about cheap. You want to talk about cheating. You want to talk about this whole idea. But I believe wholeheartedly, here's the scenario. That is exactly what's going on in the American church, in the lives of believers, and Satan is our opponent. Because what he does is he doesn't fight fair. What he does is he begins to mislead us into ideas and thoughts and processes that don't keep us unified, but rather keep us disunified. See, we live in a world that has turned any sort of disagreement into a lack of care or compassion to those around us. We've seen people leave the church and never come back. We've seen people operate out of fear rather than faith. And make no mistake about it, the Bible warns us that people will abandon the faith. It is clear Matter of fact, if you were to go on and read 2 Timothy, you would understand even more. It says that people are going to be treacherous, rash, conceited. They're going to be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of good. Those are believers that Paul is writing to Timothy about. They're going to follow deceiving spirits, and so we must be prepared. 
to identify the evil spirits and what it means to walk by faith. The truth of the matter is this, that the church right now is so divided that it cannot stand against the attacks of the enemy and the schemes of the enemy. And here's where the division comes in. The division comes in in every circumstance and situation we're in, whether it was politics over the last year with the election of the president, whether it was over the issue of COVID and should we shut down, shouldn't we shut down, or whether it was over the COVID issue of should I wear a mask or shouldn't I wear a mask, or whether it was over the COVID issue of should I get the shot or should I not get the shot. Let's be truthful. You want to wear a mask, wear a mask. You don't want to wear a mask, don't wear a mask. You want to get the shot, get a shot. You don't want to get a shot, don't get the shot. But the simple fact of the matter is that we as a church, our church, including churches around the world, around the globe, have to begin to understand that it's time to grow up and be mature. It's time to step into the forefront and realize that it is our responsibility to maintain straightness and firmness and to stick to the path. Otherwise, we're going to abandon what's going on and we're going to follow deceptive, deceiving things that Satan wants to do. I believe wholeheartedly that what is going on right now in the world, and we have to understand this, is nothing more than Satan working as hard as he can because he knows his time is short. The problem is when the church jumps in, when I say the church, I'm not just talking about us corporately, but when people who are part of the church, the bride of Christ, jump into the realm or the situation or into the side that Satan's working, and we say, see, that's why. I want to, I want to, I want to encourage you with this, and, and please hear me out. I, I was, you know, Chris and I and, and Maria and some of us as staff have been at times, you struggle and you worry. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you remember, right before COVID came, we were pushing into the mid-60s, into the mid-70s at times, and then COVID came, and I don't know, for those of you who were the faithful ones, you guys stuck it out. We were as low as 27 one Sunday. We were as high as 57 during COVID. We're slowly on the rebound, but I want to encourage you with this. Every church has experienced this. Every church is dealing with this. Doesn't matter the size, doesn't matter the scope, doesn't matter what's going on. But listen to me what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit clearly says, What Spirit is that? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is clear, and He's clearly saying that in latter times some will abandon the faith. Some will abandon and walk away. And the question at that point would be, are they real? Were they true followers? Did they just settle for the quick fire insurance rather than being true followers and disciples of Jesus? Because here's the reality. If you are a true follower of Jesus, then following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons is something you would not do. So here, here's the big statement. If you remember anything, I want you to remember this, that some will abandon the faith but a faithful follower puts their hope in Jesus Christ, period, point blank, end of story. That's the gospel message. That my hope is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That I have to understand, even as a, an American, maybe a, a, a patriotic American who's willing to lay down your life to go overseas, that my hope is in Jesus Christ, not in America. That my hope is in Jesus Christ first and foremost, not in the fact of the Constitution, but I have to rest in the fact that my hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Number one, I want you to see four things through this. Some will abandon the faith. 
When I say this, that we have to be aware of the strategies of truth's enemies, we all have to understand that. Right now, we live in a world where truth is relative. At least that's what they say. I used to make the comment a long time ago that science is always good until science disproves my point. And now all of a sudden, we live in a world where psychology trumps science, where how you feel trumps what biology says about you. That I focus more on my feelings and emotions. And trust me, the church is not far away from this because I get comments and statements consistently over feelings and emotions. And I've said this over and over and over again that feelings and emotions are the playground of Satan. That truth is built upon God's word. That my feelings and emotions will let me down. That at times, if I was to give in to my feelings and emotions, I'm going to reach across the counter and I'm going to bust a dude in the nose. Right? That's me giving in to my feelings and emotions. And likewise, listen, whether it's depression, anxiety, worry, fear, struggle, all of those things are emotions that if I allow Satan to have a foothold are going to set me off. Some will abandon the faith. And listen to what it says. The Spirit clearly says that they're going to abandon the faith. And what are they going to chase after? They're going to chase after things taught by demons. See, the enemy never fights fair. Just like we look back at the kid McCoy and that cheap shot. I mean, if I was in the corner of his, of his uh, you know, rival, I might jump into the ring and try and take him out myself. That's the way I'd roll. You just cheap shot at our dude because he's deaf. You want to play that game? I'm going to come over. I'm going to wait till he turns his back and starts walking the corner. And I'm going to blindside him, right? But that's the way Satan works. Satan works in ways to get people to think, oh, you're doing the right thing. Oh, you're going the right direction. But in reality, you're going the wrong direction. And so it says that some will abandon the faith. I can identify the work of Satan and his demons by looking at what is happening around the world. I can look at where Satan is at work, and I can look through Scripture. I can look through the lens of Scripture. I can look at what's going on around the world, and I can identify the work of Satan by looking through these glasses. Just like I can identify or see clearer when I put on these glasses, I can look through Scripture, and I can identify exactly how Satan wants to work in the lives of those who are believers and in the lives of those who aren't. Matter of fact, the Bible is very clear. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 1 Peter chapter 5, says eight, uh, chapter 5, verse 8 says this, be self-controlled and alert. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Rather than abandoning it, what do I have to do? I have to stand firm. I have to learn to resist him. How do I learn to resist him? I have to resist him through my faith in Jesus Christ alone. Why? Because some are going to abandon the faith. Some are going to turn to these evil, wicked things that Satan has done. As a matter of fact, it says this, that there is impending danger that could cause you to ship your, shipwreck your faith. Satan is hard at work deceiving, destroying, and decimating as many Christians and as many non-Christians and as many churches as he can. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 says to put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You want to know where Satan's at work? He's been at work in politics. He's been at work in race issues. 
He's been at work in COVID situations. He's been at work in masks or not masks, in vaccines or not vaccines. And the situation in the church will continue to degenerate as Christ's return approaches. Now, we look at that and we go, man, that's a lot, Brian. You're, you're kind of unloading on a lot of things. But I want us to understand what's going on here. Paul is encouraging Timothy to stay strong because some are going to abandon the faith and follow false teaching or the teachings of the enemy, the teachings of demons. And I want to be very clear on this because I think we have to begin to understand. Never think that just because you're a believer, you're too far for Satan to come and attack you, for Satan to work in you or through you, for Satan to work through the circumstances, the situation around you, to put you into a circumstance or situation where you begin to doubt God, you begin to doubt the church, you begin to doubt the love of other believers, and you say, see, they don't have my best interests in mind. Number two is this. So we said, number one is some will abandon faith. Number two, our hope must, must remain in Jesus. Can I tell you how I believe Satan works wholeheartedly in some churches? In most churches? Number one, he removes this idea of hope in Christ. Number two, I believe he puts in us a desire for selfish gratitude, selfish ideas. You know one of the things that drives me nuts as a pastor, and I'll be honest, I expect it. I know it happens. Do you know how often I hear grumblings and gossip and complaining and worry? I hear things like this. Well, this church just doesn't have what I need. This church doesn't offer me what we really need on these things. I don't like such and such. They bother me. I, I just, I'm not getting fed. And hear me out when I say this. When, when we use those excuses as a reason to say, hey, we're out, or as a reason to step away, what we begin to say is that we don't understand. What we understand is an American ideology of Christianity. I'll be honest with you. Over the last week and a half to see, or week and a half to, to, to really three weeks, to see the pressure to hear the interviews, to hear the phone calls of believers in Afghanistan calling in and saying, hey, we, we're receiving text messages. We're receiving text messages that they, they know where we live, they know we're followers of Jesus, and they've told us we're gonna lose our lives. And we're good with it. And in American cultural Christianity, we wouldn't. If the government came out and started to say, hey, we know where you live, we know what you believe, and we're going to come after you, most people at that point would say, hey, chapter 4, verse 1, I'm out. I love the church, and I love how God has used the church. And I, when I say this, I'm talking about all churches that we have all evangelical churches who have aligned themselves with Jesus. But can I tell you something? The American church is probably one of the most immature churches I have ever been around, period. Because we're selfish. If such and such doesn't happen, if it doesn't make me happy, I'm out. We want our feed and our fill from the pastor, but we're not willing to do the work it takes to grow in our own lives. We don't spend time in the Word. We don't pray. 
We spend more time on social media. We spend more time watching TV. We spend more time hanging out with people. And please hear me out. You have to have influence with other people. But the problem remains this, that the American church will always have a problem because Jesus isn't our hope. We put our hope in pastors who stand up here who are just like you. Do you know the only difference between me and you? Anybody want to know what the only difference between me and you is? I'm a pastor, you're not. That's a good one. Okay. It's called calling, right? God called me to be a pastor. And I stepped into that. And I know that. But do you know what God called you to be? Ministers of the gospel. That together we all work together to build each other up, to encourage each other, to love each other, to feed each other. But listen to me wholeheartedly and understand this, that the American church becomes the struggle or the difficulty when we allow selfishness and gossip to reign supreme. So, I know I spent a lot of time on that. Let's jump into number two. We said our hope must remain in Jesus. Why? Because our hope, listen, listen to what he says in verse eight. He says, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Hold and promise for the, both the present life, the life we're in now, and the life to come. Verse nine, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, that's for the whole church, and for this we labor and strive. In other words, this is what we work for, this is what we grind our knuckles for, this is what we continue to invest in and love and and to love others, that we have put our hope in the living God. Do you know what this idea of hope is? It's in the perfect tense. For those of you who don't know what that means, that means it's a one-time thing that ends up going on. In other words, perfect tense, which means it's an action with continuing results. That I put my hope in Jesus, that it's going to be this one-time thing that I put my hope and my faith in Jesus that has continuing results day after day after day, that every day and every morning when I wake up, I put my hope in Jesus because I don't know what I face. I don't know the struggles and difficulties. I think about 13 families who woke up the next morning and don't have a son or daughter. I mean, I'm from a small state of Wyoming, and one of the guys came from Wyoming, which doesn't happen a lot. And you stand back and you think, man, matter of fact, I don't know if you you got online, I saw the video, the mother called into a radio show, there was not very many nice things to say, so I'm not going to recommend you watch it, but you're talking about a mom whose heart was ripped out. And what I want to encourage you with is this, the only hope we can have, because we never know what tomorrow holds, is our hope in Jesus. Number three, I want you to see this, learn to live a God-glorifying life. Learn to live a God-glorifying life. Listen to what he says. It deserves full acceptance that we put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Jesus died on the cross for everybody. That's what the Bible is very clear about. But it's only those who have put their faith and trust in him, who acknowledge their sin, who say that Jesus is the only way, who believe in their heart that God raised them from dead. Those are the ones who are going to be saved. But Jesus still died for everybody. He said, for God so loved the world. I've done it for everybody. You just choose to put your faith and trust in him. So I learned to live a God-glorifying life. We live our lives in his example, as an example for those who do not know Jesus. We're not to be intimidated by what others think, but rather we demonstrate maturity by living a godly life. Matter of fact, listen to what he says. 
He says to Timothy, Paul again says this, command and teach these things. Command. In other words, he's saying this is the responsibility. You need to list this as a command. Command to teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young. Listen, I, I deal with pastors all the time. Here, here's one of the things I want you to say. And churches, right? I think it's funny how we will look at somebody and go, oh, they're young. They could never be a good pastor. Do you know one of the struggles right now that churches are facing? Pastors upon pastor upon pastor is retiring. And there are no pastors, or there are some pastors, but churches are like, oh, we want somebody who's older, more experienced, more seasoned. Could you imagine the church at Ephesus throwing that out, Timothy? Oh, Timothy, you're only in your 20s, bro. We're out. Remember what I said? The only difference between me and you is what? Calling. As some of you know, I hope all of you know, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to sin. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall. Every pastor I know is going to deal with those situations and struggles and difficulties. The problem becomes when you turn or when we turn each other into the problem. When we turn each other into the enemy. When we turn on each other and we begin to backbite and sting and stab and we're like, well, fine, I'm out. We're going to go over here. It's not unity. It's not working for the best interest of the church. It's not working for the best interest of the gospel, but it rather leads to a difficult situation. So listen to what he says. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Rather, set an example for believers in what? Speech. Wow. Man, if we were to unpack this, that's not just talking about how you talk all the time as far as do you throw out curse words or not. That's talking about, do you talk about people negatively? Do you go behind people's back and do you gossip? Do you undercut them or do you build them up? In life, how I live, my actions, how I serve. In love, how do I love those who are around me? Love is patient, love is kind, love does not boast. So if I start to line myself up with scripture, I have to begin to ask, does my love proclaim the gospel or is my love based upon the works of other people? He says, in faith and in purity. In other words, everything I do should be built upon the purity that God desires. The Bible is very clear. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we are set apart for other things, for good works that God wants to do in us. And so listen to me when we talk about this whole idea of what it means, that some will abandon the faith. But listen, faithful followers put their hope in Jesus Please hear me out when I say this. All of us are going to fail. All of us are going to struggle. All of us are going to have flaws. All of us are going to have quirks and difficulties and struggles. But what it takes is mature believers to say, hey, you know what? I can move on. I can forgive. And it takes a mature believer also, also to say, hey, listen, will you forgive me? So these are things that play out. We have to learn to live a God-glorifying life. And then listen, the last thing I want you to see as we watch our life and beliefs closely. Number four, listen to what he says in verse 16. Or actually, verse 15. He says, be diligent in these matters. What is diligence? Anybody know? Good, I'll tell you. It means a careful attention to detail. My, my son, my family, uh, anybody who's probably been around with me would tell you, um, I'm an attention to detail person. 
I, you know, people will say things like this. I, I didn't even notice that. And I'm like, I know I did. Or my wife, I'll, I'll use this example. Here's my attention to detail. Car passes me. I pass the car, car passes me, I pass the car, car passes me, I pass the same car, car passes me again. I'm like, that's the fourth time he's passed me. And she's like, I didn't even notice. Like, I'm an attention to detail person to that point, all right? Like, I notice details. I am a detail type thing. I just, it, it, and maybe it's more obsessive compulsive, I don't know. I, I don't really feel like I'm that way, but I'm just a detail person. But listen to what he says, be diligent in these matters. In other words, pay attention to these things, your speech, your life, your love, how you walk in the faith, your purity, and things like that. But then he says this, be diligent in these matters, give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress, in other words, your growth, what God wants to do. And then he says in verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, here's what he says. You will save both yourself and your hearers. So how I act, what I say, how I live in front of those who don't know Jesus and in front of those who I am teaching, remember what Paul said, to command and teach them to do these things? How I act, how I teach, how I live affects greatly my impact on those around me. Both those who are believers and those who aren't. See, here's where I want to go back and wrap up with. I want you to think about this one more time. Norman the Kid McCoy, the welter boxing, welterweight boxing champion of the world, cheated to knock a guy out to win a crown or a belt that didn't matter. And Satan does the same thing. God, I'm going to do everything I can to stop you, to stop your church, to stop the bride. And if that means I can create disunity, if that means I can create discontent, if that means I can have some walk away or abandon the faith, then I'm going to do that. That's exactly what Satan does. And we have to be on our guard. We have to be prepared. We have to be ready. And here's how I want to finish up. About, I don't remember, probably 10, 12 months ago, we did a a sermon series called Who's Your One? And when we talk about this, we want to encourage you to be focusing on at least one individual. You can say, hey, I I can invite to church. I I can pray for every day, every day. And I'm praying for this person that I'm going to come into contact with. And I know we've used these ping pong balls in the past, but here's what I want to do today. If you're a part of our church, you have some friends who you know need a relationship with Jesus Christ, what we're going to ask you to do today is this, because we're going to be praying for them. I'm asking you to pray for them specifically where you're at, but I'm going to ask you to do this today as we close with this song, is that today you're going to come up here and you're going to write their name. Now, please hear me out when I say this. Don't write their last name. Because if the person comes to church and they're like, what the heck, you wrote my name on a ping pong ball, they might have some problems. They might grab the ping pong balls and start throwing them at you. I don't know. But we're asking you to write your, their name on this ping pong ball. And here in a month or so, we're, gonna, we're working on a display that we're going to have set out there that the goal would be this, that we're praying for these individuals on the ping pong ball. And that when that individual comes to faith in Christ, we're going to change the color of the ping pong ball and we're going to put it in a different basket, different case. 
But I want this to be on the forefront of our minds every time we walk through that door. That we want to see people who don't know Jesus come to faith in Christ. And guess what that means? That I can't abandon the faith. That I have to be aware of the schemes of Satan. And that I need the church, other believers in my life to help me walk through this, to strengthen me, to encourage me, to encourage me to live the life that Paul's talked about to Timothy, to command and teach these things. And so just as we close with the song, I'm going to encourage you, come up, write a name. If you want to do more than one, you can do more than one, and then drop them right here in this empty one. Let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you. God, I thank you for the good news of what we're hearing out of Afghanistan, that God, in the midst of what we could call a trying time, an a, a crazy situation, a, a time where we cast doubt and worry, God, that you, I think of Matthew chapter 24, where it says the gospel will be preached to the ends of the world and then you will come. God, you are making ways for Afghans to come to faith in Jesus. And God, I believe that you have also opened doors that those who are coming to the United States will have the chance to hear the gospel, maybe for the first time. So God, may we be a church that wraps our arms around those who are refugees, who have lost their home country. But God, may we have open doors and open ears and open arms to serve with great compassion, with the love that we see in, in these verses right here, where that we, as we watch the way we love, that we love with great hope. And that, Lord, likewise, those who are lost, those who don't have a relationship with Jesus right now, that are friends that you've put in our midst, that we would pray for them daily. And that, God, you would give us the words to speak and the hearts of compassion to share the truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.